Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and this week's show is brought to you by Remediant. Remediant makes what I think is a pretty interesting PAM solution. It's definitely a lot easier to set up than something like a password vault solution. And yeah, you can find them at remediant.com. Remedian's co-founder Paul Lanzi is along this week to talk about some trends in cyber insurance. That's this week's sponsor interview. Regular listeners would know we've been pretty pessimistic about cyber insurance, uh, but uh, Paul is actually joining us with some good news. He says the types of things we wanted insurers to do, like, uh, you know, actually taking steps to understand the risks their clients are taking uh, when they take out policies. Uh, Paul says that's actually starting to happen. So yeah, do stick around for that interview with Paul Lanzi of Remediant. That is, of course, coming up later. But first up, it's time for a check of the week's security news with our good friend, Adam Boileau. And Adam, <laughs> it's funny we spoke about Lapsus last week, this group of, um, you know, chaotic evil hackers who are running around sometimes uh, extorting companies doing you know data extortion not ransomware uh, but data extortion and sometimes they're just going around and hacking people for the hell of it and uh, yeah the the old target list swelled up a bit over the last few days Yes, we've seen a lot of reports uh, of them doing things around the internet but the one that's really got people's attention uh, has been Okta uh, the Lapsus crew posted I think on their telegram some screenshots. Uh, of some manner of like mid-level support engineer with access to Okta systems and said that they had busted into Okta and were going after customers uh, of Okta, which given that Okta is a centralized auth solution uh, for a lot of very, very important things, uh, that really put the cat amongst the, you know, the cyber pigeons on InfoSec Twitter. <laughs> sure, <laughs> dude. It was... Um it was almost like, you know, I'll admit to being a little bit detached after covering this space for so long. So I was able to just sit back scrolling my feed <laughs> with a bit of a sort of smile, just saying, ah, yes, you know, the chaos, breathe it in. But look, we don't really know what the impact is here. Uh, I will, uh, of course, disclose that Okta is a sponsor of this podcast, uh, but their comms on this have been terrible like really really bad they put out a statement which is just so devoid of actionable information that it's borderline impressive yes the communication has been pretty poor and you know the way that they've kind of couched it as it looks like it turns out that a third party you know kind of provider to okta uh, that provided any kind of support engineering services customer support and that kind of thing uh, was the source of the screenshot that we saw uh, and they said they had that and that screenshot was dated back to january sometime so okta have come out and said you know there was some compromise of a third party you know for a week in january but they couldn't see any passwords and then they kind of weaseled about whether or not like we don't know whether or not that you know, level of support engineer could, for example, reset multi-factor auth tokens or enroll new auth tokens or you know, kind of what level of access to Okta customers that provided. And that's, for Okta customers, pretty important to be pretty clear about. And their statement really wasn't. Uh, and then we've seen a bunch of people piling on um, with other experiences of, you know, dealing with Okta, reporting bugs to Okta, for example. Uh, I think we saw John, Ob John Oberheib, one of the founders of Duo, talking through an experience he'd had um, reporting some kind of SAML federated auth bugs to Okta and them saying, hey, we weren't affected when they meant that they had patched it. Yeah, so the, the advisory went out with Okta saying, you know, unaffected when really they just patched it when they got the bug report, which, you know, is really giving incident responders and blue teams a bump steer because they're thinking, oh, we don't have to look into this one yes, for evidence exactly. of compromise. Like, that's really poor form. 
It is. And yeah, the comms have not been great. I imagine they will kind of get their act together and maybe put out some better information. Now they're seeing some of the backlash and the kind of negative reputation uh, stuff that's going on around it. But but like, I mean, the know. fact is like the, the amount of mental effort that's going into trying to parse and interpret their statement is just crazy, right? So they say stuff like, oh, we brought in, a th- you know, the contractor brought in a third party to have a look at this compromise. Okay, who was the third party? They don't say. What were their findings? They don't say. What actually happened? They don't say, right? Now, yes. surely if they brought in a, a third party to examine this, they would have some of that information. Why not release it? It's just, why even bother saying you had third party incident response if you're not going to tell us what it found? It's just, yeah, it's just crazy. And then really vague statements about, yeah, that don't make it clear whether or not this... <sighs> whether or not this attacker was able to re-enroll MFA for users. So if you had a user, username and password, could you you know, use this access to uh, yeah, sign up a new token or something? Totally unclear. Totally yeah, unclear. I mean, one of the things that the CSO of Okta said in his blog post was, the potential impact to Okta customers is limited to the access that support engineers have. Well, I'm not a support engineer at Okta. How do I know what access yeah. support engineers have? Like, that's a completely unuseful statement to <sighs> me in order to judge the risk. And I say this logged into a system that uses Okta, right? I mean, yeah. so yeah, frustrating is what that was. No, it really is, you know. And that's not, I mean, you know, Okta is, and Okta, let's face it, you know, you just mentioned you're logged in through Okta at the moment. It is one of those uh, one of those uh, companies that is kind of too big to fail, right? <laughs> like, it is, it is absolutely is a... thing in the cyber world. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is actually a thing. You know, Okta is too big to fail. But, you know, you just sort of question the wisdom of putting out statements like that. Now, look, if there's stuff they don't know, say that. You know, when we've seen big incidents handled well in the past, right, where a company will come out and just say, look, we're not sure here. Uh, this is what we're looking into. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. And, yeah, hopefully we will start to see some stuff uh, trickling out of Okta, uh, you know, uh, through the course of the next day or two. But it shouldn't have got to this point. No, no, it really shouldn't. I mean, you know, Okta has one business line, right, which is selling off as a service. Trust is very important with that. Like, this is not like it's some sideshow, you know, piece of – you know, software or something that they acquired. Like, this is core business for them and managing how you communicate and impact, you know, an issue like this with your core business. Like, you know, you've yeah. got to do a good job of that. Yeah, and there's um, a bunch of people on Twitter too. Like, the chickens are very restless, Adam, and they're saying things like, well, we couldn't get any straight answers out of them about Log4J either. And rah, 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 rah. So, yes, you know, I know a lot of Okta people listen to this and, um, you know, get your comms together. What are you doing? It's okay. No one expects exactly. you to be perfect, but, you know... Do better on the comm side. You just that statement just has you can feel the lawyer on it, you know. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it just <laughs> smells like uh, Italian shoes, lawyer, a uh, lawyer's Italian shoes. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, it's not just Okta having a bad time, and this is the no. thing: these lapses. We've all been worried about Russia. What's going to happen? Are the ransomware crews going to come and eat us alive? Or is the Russian, you know, is the sandworm crew going to start flicking off the power stations in America? And then a group of you know, and the thinking is that lapses is a group of Young people from Latin America. Uh, I've heard people say one of them is a Colombian, uh, a Colombian teenager. Another one, you know, is pretty clearly Brazilian, given the way that they're very plugged in with Brazilian memes and 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 perfect Portuguese, right? <laughs> so you know, while we're looking at the big threat from Russia, a bunch of uh, Latin teenagers have just come to smoke us. <laughs> yeah, which you know, part of me really loves, and and yeah. you know, I, I, you know, I feel a little bit irresponsible now that we're all, you know, both you and I are grown up, you know, kind of industry commentators that's supposed to take these things seriously. But part of me is like, lol, like these guys are, are doing a great 
job. I mean, Microsoft's written up a blog post. Because um, it exposes the absurdity. I really had to think about this. What is it about me? Because I found myself laughing about this and I'm like, why am I laughing about this? And I think it's because it exposes the absurdity of the whole bloody thing, right? Yes. And this is why we like to lulsec as well, yeah, which is exactly, you can have yes. all of these really serious companies, you know, billions of dollars of value. You can have industry conferences, thousands of people uh, in this industry taking it all very seriously. And then a few kids come along and just lay waste to the world's biggest brands. <laughs> And you just think, <laughs> you know, lol. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And the the, the twenty year old hacker and me is just exactly that lol, right? They're doing a good job. And, and Microsoft has uh, written them a blog post uh, talking through a bunch of their kind of techniques and what Microsoft is seeing. Is obviously they broke into Microsoft and dumped the source code to Bing, which. I saw one person joking, like, is it just a 503 to Yahoo and some rewrites, you know, <laughs> yeah. through. Um, but no, like, a bunch of bun dumped a bunch of Microsoft source code, clearly had some reasonable access in there. Microsoft written up, you know, like, initial access mechanisms. These, you know, they were just buying access in some cases uh, on their Telegram forums. Um, and, you know, escalating access through, you know, GitHub and Jira and internal tooling like that, getting domain admin, helping Well, they were also doing that, uh, that uh, MFA push technique where you just spam the user yeah, until the they MFA eventually spam. say, I can't be bothered pressing no anymore and press OK, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> it's not dumb if it works. But look, yeah. just, you know, with all of this, right, it seems like they're pretty good at propagating their access. The thing that I'm more interested in on this, on the Okta side of it, is it's less about what the support engineer could do to individual accounts because presumably... Okta would have an audit trail for what, you know, creds were reset. Um, You'd uh, hope by so. that. Well, you would hope so. Although Matthew Prince from uh, Cloudflare has always already said that they have uh, reset any password that was reset in the previous four months, right? Which probably not a crazy idea, mm -hmm. uh, given the, the information vacuum that we're operating under at the moment. But what I'm more curious about is like what they might have pulled out of Okta's Slack, right? Because we all know <laughs> that there's a whole bunch of stuff in Slack that shouldn't be. And I wonder the same thing for Microsoft. If they got Crown Jewels access, you know, what else did they get? And what, what's that going to mean for persistence and their ability to return? Yes. And I mean, it's a good question, especially, you know, if you're an attacker and you land in a big environment, it can be pretty overwhelming to figure out where all the interesting bits are and can take a while to figure out, you know, where to look for information, what's current. Uh, and, you know, if you think you have temporary access, hoovering quickly so that you can peruse it later to regain access if you get caught or thrown out, you know, it makes a lot of sense. And in a place like Microsoft, like once you've started hitting source trees, I mean, Microsoft actually came out and said, you know, we don't rely on the secrecy of source code, you know, key materials managed separately, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is great. That is a good, you know, a good thing to say and an even better thing to do, I suppose. But is um, this one of those in but, theory things? <laughs> well, I mean, this is, you know, there's yeah. a lot of moving parts. And, and I mean, Microsoft more than anywhere. I can't imagine a bigger org with more things going on. You know, yeah. once you get in there and help yourself, like trying to figure out, where to go and what to do, and then for the responders trying to figure out where they've been and what they've done and what they've well, got. Well, and, and, and just sort of you're going to just wind up somewhere anyway because you know, kind of almost randomly. Like I don't think these guys broke in thinking, ah, oh, let's go get the source code for Bing. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> <Cortana. that's, laughs> that's probably not what no. the, the you know they probably didn't have a plan. They just like let's see what we can get. Yeah, I mean, probably right. You land on a dashboard, you click on all the things you can find, you know, all the apps that are on the VDI or, you know, on the in the access thing you've got. And yeah, there's pointy clicking until you find something interesting and exfill it as fast as you can. <laughs> but yeah, it was also interesting. Uh, Microsoft said they were using like SIM swapping and like physical, like actually phoning people and a bunch of like, you know, social, pretty reasonable quality social engineering tricks. Um, so uh, quite a good grab bag, like a well-rounded team is what it feels like, you know? There's, yeah, but I mean, we're still talking about 
essentially a bunch of very young people in South America doing yes. this, right? Which is yeah. just, you know, I don't know. Well, look, let's just see how this all plays out over the next few days. I Look, I have a feeling this is going to end in the usual way, uh, which is a, uh, a plane ride north, shall we say. Yes. Yeah, someone's going to have to turn rat to, to cover their ass. A bunch of people will end up on planes north. Uh, and then we'll see whether, you know, <laughs> whether sentencing is any more sensible than it has ever been. I don't know anymore. All right. Well, look, let's move on. And um, the United States and UK and a little bit here in Australia, you know, a lot of the Five Eyes um, uh, governments are starting to warn of impending Russian attacks. Uh, in fact, in a statement on the uh, White House website, we have uh, uh, the line, today my administration is reiterating those warnings, you know, warnings of Russian cyber attacks, uh, based on evolving intelligence that the Russian government is exploring options for a potential cyber attack. Now, look, I think shitty comms are actually our theme of the week because that is another uh, information-free statement that does really nothing to help anyone. But we do have some coverage from the uh, from CNN, uh, from Sean Lingus, who's over there now, uh, saying that the FBI uh, is saying that, uh, that uh, Russian hackers scanned the networks of five US energy firms. So perhaps... You know, the the warning is based on that, but we don't really know. Either way, though, the US government is definitely putting out the vibe that something is going to happen. I think even uh, Biden w- said the other day, oh, it's coming, you know, but we don't know what they're basing it on. So, uh? Yeah, it is kind of hard to know how seriously to take stuff like this. I mean, in the past, we've seen some really vague communication, you know, to just kind of do things better, which clearly we should do things better. Yeah, you put your and shields then, up, Adam. Like, that's what you do in a situation like this. You put your shields up. <laughs> but then we've also seen, you know, some uh, some of the announcements that they've made recently, especially with Ukraine, you know, have then kind of, kind of come true. Like, it's clear that they did have good intel. Um, mm. So... You know, you want to believe that this is continuing to be based on good intel, but part of you just thinks, you know, these energy firms being scammed by Russians, like, were they being scammed by Russians a month ago, six months ago, three years ago, probably? And yeah. maybe no one noticed then, and now it's a case of go and look on the logs and you find the stuff that you want to find. So, you know, I'm, I'm torn. Like, I, you know, I want to believe they have good intel and are acting on it and, uh, you know, everything's getting, all the shields are going up, but, you know, I don't know, still cynical. It is a little bit hard to know. Um, now, we've got some more, you know, specific and actionable advice coming from CESA and the FBI looking at the issue of SATCOM security, Adam, which, uh, as you know, is a topic that has been near and dear to my heart lately. <laughs> yes. So after the uh, intrusion into Viasat service that we talked about pretty extensively in the last couple of weeks, um, they've been warning in general that uh, operators of SATCOM networks, ground stations, service providers uh, all need to be somewhat thoughtful about how their systems may be being used, what their you know attack service looks like. Uh, and you know clearly the risk profile of being a SATCOM operator has changed in the last month than, than what it would have been. So yeah, good reminder for everybody uh, who's operating one of those. Now, look, speaking of... <laughs> Adjusting your risk <laughs> <Satcom>. register. <laughs> speaking of SATCOM, Elon Musk being Elon Musk, uh, when this, this war kicked off in Ukraine, said, hey, I'm going I'm to send a whole bunch of Starlink terminals to Ukraine. And I'm thinking, you know, his thinking is so that the information can be free, man, so that they can still get on the internet and, you know, tell the world what's happening <laughs> next minute. Uh, these Starlink uh, terminals that have been sent into Ukraine are being used 
by uh, uh, Ukrainian drone operators. Now, these are not the big Bayraktar TB2s that I've spoken about previously. These are small, almost hobbyist drones that are capable of seeing in infrared, so they can see at night, and they can also do things like drop five kilogram munitions directly onto tanks that might be hiding in urban areas to discourage things like artillery strikes. So there's this whole Ukrainian drone unit made up of uh, hobbyists, model plane hobbyists, who wound up being sort of brought into the to the armed forces to operate this unit. And it's, you know, it's a very, very clear military use of a civilian technology, which is interesting. Now, this story comes to us via the Times of London and Russian officials are apoplectic about this, right? Because they did their big fancy hack of uh, SATCOM terminals in Ukraine. That's the, that's the prevailing theory. And now here you have these people using a civilian tech uh, Starlink to operate, not only operate the drones, uh, but also to do things like target designation. They've got some sort of NATO compatible like battle management system, uh, battle space management system that they're all using Starlink to access. This makes Starlink absolutely a military target. So, Adam, what did you what did you make of of this Times of London story? Because you know, in addition to bolstering the theory that the Satcom hack was about taking out you know um, uh, data links that could be used to do target co- targeting coordination, um, it's just a it's just a wild time, right? When you've got a bit of civilian tech now essentially becoming a military target. Yeah, it's it's a very very interesting position. And if I was like if I was security ops over at SpaceX. You know, last week, week before, when this started to happen, I would be pretty worried. Like this has really, I think, materially changed. You know, the security posture of SpaceX and Starlink. Um, mm. You know, they are in a position now where they have a very real adversary who's suffering very real pain, you know, losing tanks in the middle of the night because of their of their services. And you know, Starlink's a really interesting one because of the you know very big you know, mega constellation, um, you know, I was thinking uh, when I was reading about this, like about the Russian anti-satellite weapons test they did, you know, a couple of years back, and they've got the capability to take out sats and make a mess of the orbit in the process, which is not great. But I mean, those have always been really, you know, meant for really big, really heavy, you know, geostationary orbit military recon sats or, you know, kind of big stuff, not thousands of very, very small satellites. And so, like, the kinetic option of, well, let's just pop a satellite, because it's clearly a military target, blah, 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 like, that's going to be much harder with something like Starlink. And you look at that... Well, not, go, well, not if you just shoot them all down, right? Like, as they as they come flying past, just pew, pew, fire lasers. I don't <laughs> think it's going to go that way. I don't think we're going to see Russia lasering uh, Starlink satellites uh, out of the sky, but I could certainly see them... Uh, trying to weasel their way into the network, right, yes. and, and disabling it that way. Yeah, that, that's I guess that's where I was heading is like the kinetic, you know, traditional anti-sat things of let's jam it or let's kinetic it are much less attractive for this kind of constellation. Whereas very fast moving high tech company, lots of DevOps, lots of moving quickly and breaking stuff, lots of agile is a very very attractive target for cybering. Uh, and you know, if Putin said to me, "Can you please turn off Elon Musk's tubes?" you know, cyber is the way to do it um, mm. rather than anything else. So, yeah, it's a it's going to be an interesting time over at SpaceX and I hope they have their shields up. Um, well, you do get the impression Musk just didn't think this through, right? Because he's thinking it's one thing and very quickly it's the other thing. You know, and that's, and and that's I, Elon going to Elon. Well, yeah, exactly, Elon going to And I guess like everyone who works at SpaceX must be used to waking up in the morning and finding out that their job has materially changed overnight because Elon tweeted something. He's got and a bit so, of the Trump. He's got a bit of the Trump in him, doesn't he? <laughs> he really there does. There's a bit of like you know shooting from the hip on Twitter. Um, 
And well, what's I mean, interesting is they'd been trying to land Starlink in Ukraine already, and then it wasn't when they got a tweet from, I think it was the relevant minister from Ukraine, saying, we need Starlink now. Uh, I think he just, Musk instructed his regulatory people to consider that a letter from the minister, right? Which I think, you know, that's cool. Why yeah, not? That, yeah, I'm down with that. Yeah, yeah that's how business but then get it's being used right. to blow stuff up, and you just, you yeah. know, the Russians are apoplectic, and you're thinking, if you're Elon Musk, you're going to avoid sushi dates uh, you know, he's going to need a sushi uh, a sushi tester, uh, especially when he's dining around Russians <laughs> yeah, for the foreseeable yeah, exactly. future. You know? Oof, Maybe he yeah. needs a doorknob opener as well, because that's how <laughs> yeah, what's-his-name got Novichoked, was yeah, Novichoked on the doorknob. I'm not sure if his like, caravan in Boca Chica where he lives has a doorknob. It's probably just like a bead curtain or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean, but we, yes. we got uh, Tom Uren's going to do a bit, a bit more of a deep dive on this in uh, tomorrow's newsletter, the Seriously Risky Business newsletter jokingly called seriously risky business because yeah we tend to focus on the on the sort of higher impact stuff like this but from the research uh tom has done uh already with uh, you know who i call the quote unquote war people uh they say yes starlink is indeed a legitimate military target not that russia tends to care what is and is not a legitimate (laughs) military target but you know absolutely starlink being used in this way the network uh, is a legit target yeah, yeah, it certainly is. And when they land it into, you know, North Korea without asking, then it'd <laughs> be good if they prepared for that as well. <laughs> oh, that'd be interesting. <laughs> it would be, uh, wouldn't it? But look, it's not just limited to Starlink and, and Elon Musk. DJI is, the drone maker, is having a real hard time because their stuff is being used to do all sorts of things uh, in the Russia-Ukraine war and by both sides. And this is a difficult thing to navigate for DJI. Yeah, it is. So they've been, you know, obviously DJI makes a number of, um, you know, of different sizes of drones and things, but they also make, you know, things like drone detection hardware and software and other tooling um, that, you know, is meant for civilian and law enforcement use, uh, but absolutely is is dual use military tech. And with both sides using, you know, drones for recon, sticking, you know, as you said, the, you know, hobbyists sticking bombs on you know, consumer grade drones and using them like they are in a difficult position. And of course, the political situation with China, you know, not not supporting Russia, but also not not, you know, kind of saying that the war is bad, like the government position is difficult for DJI. And then there's the, you know, kind of commercial position, you know, DJI, for example, has um, software controls on the drones where they can, you know, um, geofence areas that the drones shouldn't fly into. And they said, well, we could push a geofence rule into but Ukraine then, so but that then no one can got fly. To, people have got to download the new But then people right? have yeah. to, you know, hit the software update button, which, you know, Russia is pretty clear that maybe you shouldn't go update your Western software at the moment, which we'll get to in a second. Well, this um, is Eastern software, but anyway. Yeah, well, yes, yes. <laughs> software, not from Russia. But yeah, they are definitely in a difficult position because like, what's the correct thing to do, right? How do you differentiate between Russian drones and, and Ukrainian drones or do you turn everybody's drones or do you just throw your hands in the air? Like, I mean, even without the Chinese angle, like yeah, like, and a, how's the chairman going to feel about this, right? Like, yes. you've got to factor that in, and it's hard to know because they're being pretty cagey about where they actually <laughs> stand on it. And, but I mean, look, this this whole thing. You remember last week we spoke about how, uh, you know, the Bayraktar TB2s, this this kind of new integrated uh, tool that is networked and whatever. Now, look, you know, to a degree, that stuff isn't new. I said, oh, here's an example of what that looks like. What I meant by that is previously the types of militaries that operated this stuff were like the Americans, right, where they have their own DoD 
these satellites. They are operating predators out of bases. There's a predator program. It costs a gajillion dollars, right? Um, and that's sort of how that stuff's been done. What we're seeing now is the emergence of not only consumer products being used in warfare for lethality, and that's in the case of DJ, you know, possibly DJI drones, um, certainly some, some consumer-grade drones uh, of other brands, uh, and things like Starlink. And then you've got the sort of stuff in the middle, like the Bayraktar TB2, which I'm going to call prosumer uh, military <laughs> hardware, right? Because, okay, so uh, the, the Bayraktar TB2 uses a satellite called Turksat, which is interesting because it got me thinking, okay, well, if that's using Turksat, does that handle both sides of the communication or do they actually tunnel that out to another provider and then out through Viasat to people in the field over the internet? Because that's kind of, or, or or is it some sort of dedicated, I don't know, IPsec link between Turksat and Viasat on a private IP space dedicated for military use? I don't know, but this is interesting stuff because at some point, even when it's being used and everything's working, you're thinking maybe some of this stuff is being carried over shared civilian military infrastructure, and that's the new part, right? Yeah, 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 I think it is. I mean, obviously, the internet was originally built as, you know, military command and control network and then turned into a civilian network. And now it's kind of interesting to see it used. Yeah, I mean, real time battlefield comms using internet infrastructure is a pretty strange place to be. Um, actually, one thing I thought after we'd recorded the section about the Bioreactor and Turksat last week was the Turksat, and there's more than one Turksat satellite. Uh, the funny thing is, at least some of the Turksat fleet were launched by the Russians from Baikonur. So yeah. that's a bit orcs. Yes, awkward. There's a whole bunch of that going around at the moment. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so look, we'll leave that part of the discussion there. But geez, this is this is sort of really reshaping our understanding of how technology is used in in wartime, right? And um, yeah, and also what it means for the operators and vendors and suppliers of those technologies. You know, let's uh, continue talking about sort of Ukraine adjacent stuff. Um, <laughs> Bit of an interesting politically motivated supply chain subversion happened over the last week, Adam. Yes, uh, there were well, there was reporting that um, the widespread Vue.js like front end JavaScript framework uh, had started exhibiting some strange behaviour, and it turned out to be that somewhere in its supply chain, uh, one of the maintainers of a, of a JavaScript module uh, had written a new piece of code called Peace Not War, uh, which would like drop an anti war message on your desktop, and then he'd include it as a dependency for some of his other packages, which were much more widely used, uh, and then that ended up getting pulled into people's, you know, kind of automated builds, supply chains, and, and you know, deployed out because that's how we do things these days. Let's just build it and ship it. Um, and then at some point a bit later on, um, this was modified to then check if the code was running in Russia or Belarus. And then if so, start opening files and sticking emoji hearts in them, like deleting the contents and replacing mm -hmm. them with emoji hearts. Um, and so, yes, this obviously had a lot of people a little bit concerned. And it's a great reminder of, you know, the fact that your supply chain is made up of, you know, 10,000 different nerds, any one of whom may get to be in their bonnet at any time and make all of your infrastructure do something different. Yeah, and uh, Catalan Kimpanu has tweeted that uh, the, uh, the the cyber, what, how do you say NKTSKI, but there's a way to pronounce it like Nikhtchi or something. <laughs> this is the <laughs> Russian cybersecurity group that the agency, um, they've told uh, 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 companies in Russia to l use local repos for free and open source software, to use old versions prior to the invasion and uh, to audit new updates. So, you know, it's obviously caused a bit of concern uh, in Russia. Uh, yes, and I mean that—that's probably good advice for everybody, and has been the whole time, right? To have a good idea of what your supply chain dependencies are, and you know, control them, pin them, 
audit them before you push them out. Ain't no one got time for that, but I mean, it's good advice, uh, Russia or otherwise. But yes, they are certainly concerned. And I was, uh, I was struck by the conversation we had a couple of weeks ago now about this idea that we should restrict the ability of Russia to get software updates, you know, from the West. And then, you know, in an effect, this is kind of doing the same thing for open source, right? Being unsure about the quality of the supply chain may have a similar sort of effect, regardless of whether or not we thought the, you know, commercial software Windows updates were a good idea or not. So it may just happen, you know, regardless, based on the actions of a few individuals. Yeah, that's a really good point. And you would be thinking too, as the Russian government, I mean, I'm guessing there's a lot of windows around Russia. <laughs> and you're probably thinking, do we want to leave auto updates on? Uh, yeah. Do I mean, we need a ha- to check the hashes versus, versus versions obtained in other places? And, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so that's a really tough call, right? Do we not patch and have known bugs? Do we patch and maybe get backdoors? Do we do neither? Do we not know what we're doing? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So hard, hard times, but yes. uh, beats, beats having your house bombed uh, by mm-hmm. a bunch of cowards. Anyway, now look, that concludes our sort of Russia-Ukraine uh, component of the show. Um, my thoughts too, and I'm, I'd imagine I speak for you too, Adam, um, my thoughts go out to, to everyone. Uh, who's affected by this in Ukraine. I know I have listeners in Ukraine because uh, a couple of years back when I'd say the Ukraine, they would write me angry emails. Yes. Uh, so um, we, we hope you're all hanging on uh, in there. And uh, yeah, it's just an absolutely awful crime uh, what's happening in your country. And um, yeah, we wish you all the best and uh, all absolutely, the safety. Yes. And- Yes. Uh, But look, let's move on to other topics now. And uh, we've got a report here from Joel Shetman and Christopher Bing over at Reuters, which uh, is quite appropriate because the United States has introduced new rules that will prevent, uh, that will actually prevent like ex-intelligence community people from being able to go and work for foreign companies uh, and foreign countries for 30 months uh, after they exit. And this is to stop, you know, knowledge transfer out straight out of those agencies into uh, foreign hands. Now, of course, this comes in response to the Project Raven uh, UAE dark matter stuff. Reuters were pretty instrumental. In reporting on that, I think the story, you know, the, the journalists who deserve a lot of credit for this are Jenna McLaughlin, who wrote a lot about this for The Intercept and then subsequent uh, coverage from uh, Chris Bing at Reuters. And yeah, now we have new rules. And um, look, I think this sort of qualifies as the bare minimum, but uh, you, you can imagine how much back and forth there was between lobby groups and uh, lawmakers on where to where to stick that that time period, right? Yes, it certainly feels that way. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who, you know, joined up and and work in the American services, um, you know, this is a thing that may change some of their plans, you know, like, what are you going to do when you leave the Intel services or the contractors or wherever else? Um, And so there's this 30 month restriction of being able to work for, um, it's, it's quite a broad definition of what constitutes you know, a, a foreign control or a foreign supported company. Well, and so and I, thought, probably... I, thought, I thought that was interesting too, because they're clearly trying to set it up so that you can't sort of weasel, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then, so like, I mean, yeah, it does feel like it's weasel, you know, counter weasel, weasel. Weasel proof. Yes. <laughs> there's a weasel buster. Um, but there's also on top of that uh, 30 month restriction, um, there is a requirement to report any foreign government work uh, to the US intelligence community and Congress for five years after you leave service. So, that's a you know pretty reasonable. I mean, collecting that kind of data that seems like a useful thing for them to do, um, and yeah, I mean it's probably quite you know going to be quite an impact for you know the people who work in those communities and then decide to move on. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's um it's interesting stuff, right? I, like if you read the Shadow Brokers blog posts, the person who did the Shadow Brokers leaks 
if you are to believe what they wrote in their blog posts, was very upset about this type of knowledge transfer, particularly to the UAE. That might have been a bit of a motive uh, for the shadow brokers to do what they did, but uh, yes. Dan Gooden over at Ars has a write-up of a, uh, you know, what looks to be basically a fishing kit, but it's a clever one and it apparently works quite well where you click what looks to be like an OAuth, you know, dialogue. Uh, and instead of just bringing you a button that says, yeah, authorize, it says, well, you need to log in first in order to authorize this and um, works pretty well, apparently. Yeah, this is a, a modern take on a, you know, a pretty classic attack of like making a fake login window that looks like the real login window and capturing creds. I mean, I remember people doing that with netware, you know, Novell netware login windows at university back in the day. Uh, I guess the real trick here is that it's, people are used to now sticking passwords into pop-ups when you do one of the like sign in with Google, sign in with, with Facebook or whatever. If you're not already off, then you kind of get this you know, kind of extra browser window pop up. And so this kit is of this phishing technique is, you know, putting fake browser Chrome, you know, closed buttons and window titles and, and a, a URL bar with a padlock and stuff to make it look legit. Much like, you know, in the Internet Explorer days, people would get, you know, fake windows, you know, oh my God, you've got a virus, click here to install the antivirus product sort of, you know, fake pop-ups. Um, and we ended up restricting pop-up windows in browsers for this reason. Uh, now we've brought them back for all of them. We're surprised that people are making fake pop-up windows. Um, so yeah, it's a technique that would totally work and having a polished toolkit to do this, you know, uh, available will absolutely increase the likelihood that we see this in the wild and it will totally work. Yeah, um, no, it, it, it will. And it just really drives home the point that we st need to start moving to some of this, you know, U2F based hardware, right? And there is actually a story in this week's run sheet from Lily Hay Newman uh, over at Wired talking about the steps the Fido Alliance is taking to really move us away from passwords. And i got to say, like I recently bought a new Mac app, laptop, you know, with the fingerprint doohickey and everything. And you can see that it's, it's all starting to take shape, at least when it comes to modern hardware, right? So I do feel like we've kind of reached the point where passwords are stupid and we have a meaningful alternative now, like a, an, an actual alternative. Yes, and I think you know this story with the the you know fake browser windows illustrates the importance of having authentication done out of band, like not in band in the browser window. And something like a hardware token, a fingerprint reader, like that's the reason why we press control or delete on Windows, right? Is so that there is a trusted keystroke that gets you into a trusted context that can't be faked so easily uh, to be able to put in your auth. And so this combination of hardware that's starting to have dedicated you know biometrics or you know dedicated TPMs or other mechanisms that are separated effectively that's the thing that we have always been missing you know in moving to a passwordless world and you know the hardware support is starting to arrive there now which yeah fido is definitely one piece of that puzzle but the whole ecosystem has been dragged that way yes i mean i think i've set up apple pay with a fingerprint thing and you know it's really weird when you've been in tech for so long and you go like i have no idea how this works but i think it's some sort of u2f thing and i don't know i'll just press the button and <laughs> yeah uh, there's you know. probably some web or thing in there i don't really understand yeah but yeah. i mean presumably someone's tested it We've got another story too from Dan about uh, some of the ways that uh, uh, scammers are getting malicious apps onto iOS devices. One of them, one of them actually is pretty interesting because it's there's actually an app you can get from Apple which is like an app tester uh, for devs and stuff that allows you to sort of roll out you know untrusted apps. So if you can trick someone into installing that, you can sneak apps onto them and whatever. It's just an just yeah, it's test flight, right? It's called test flight. But yeah, it's it's a, it's an interesting little little write up. This I thought. Yeah, but it's a good example of doing what works, right? I mean, if Apple provides you an app that lets you run unsigned app, why not just ask people to install that app? Yeah. Um, and that's what they've been doing, right? I mean, the 
um, installing, like there's some screenshots here of like fake Bitcoin wallet apps or something. And the install instructions is like step one, install Apple test flight. And then step two, download the app, which, I mean, that doesn't seem unreasonable. You know, you're getting it from the app store and why wouldn't it not be trusted now? So you can kind of see why it's turned up as a phishing vector because I mean, hey, it's a great idea. Uh, yeah. I don't really know what Apple would do about it because it's kind of intended how it's meant to work, but... Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the um, other thing Dan talks about is the, you know, the enterprise developer program with Apple and people have been abusing that forever, yes, yeah, right? it's been going on for a while, yeah. But, you know, you'd rather be dealing with this than the Android. Um, well, well fire, yes, right? exactly, right? I mean, I guess it's a mark of success that they are reduced to doing this to get malicious apps, you know, and onto Apple devices. So in that, in that half, it's good. But still, I mean, it'll absolutely get some people owned. So, you know, yeah. good job whoever thought of that. Like, I, you know, my hat's off to whichever... You know, whichever fishing fake crypto fishing crew decided to do this, because yeah, good job. AJ Vicens over at CyberScoop uh, has a story up uh, writing writing about some tag research. Uh, this is from last week, but it's looking at some people who are closely affiliated with Conti who have been you know just doing initial access and whatever. But they're using they're using like stra- they're called exotic lily apparently, and they're using straight up Ode uh, affecting like uh, Microsoft Office documents. So that's kind of interesting where we're seeing these, you know, criminal actors actually using pretty decent O'Day in a campaign. Yeah, and I was initially thinking that we don't see a lot of that. But then, you know, now that we're seeing this sort of specialization into, you know, like access brokers being a separate crew from the people who are doing the ransoming or stealing data or, or whatever, you know, monetization, but it makes sense that they would specialize, right, and start to invest in their tooling and be good at their craft. And, you know, if you... Uh, have a you know Microsoft O'Day and you use it yourself, you know on a, on a, on a you know, few campaigns, right? You know the cost of that's pretty high. If you can use it a lot, very very quickly before it gets patched, like you accept it's going to get burnt, you may as well make the most of it at once. And that means hitting heaps of people quickly, and that way you can kind of monetize it and make it worthwhile. So I think from an economics point of view, it, it makes sense for well, good we don't, we access don't, brokers. We don't know that yet. We've okay, got to okay. see if yeah. they keep doing it. <laughs> yes, that's true. I, I think it's a great model, and whoever pitched that as the, you know, for the business case of buying some O'Day, you know, that's what they would have put on the slides. That's what yeah, I, I mean, I guess it's interesting because we've seen, oh, my God, you know, they're using O'Day, and we've seen them using trash bugs in VPN collectors and whatever. Like, we have seen that before, but the fact that we're talking about, like, traditional Microsoft product, you know, Microsoft desktop product O'Day, that's kind of what makes it noteworthy. I don't know that we can call one instance a trend, but it is, and, and I, I kind of agree with you, right? Like that it's that it's this idea that if you're going to specialize in access, you probably want to have a couple of these in your in your tool bag. Yeah, and I, you know, you want to be willing to burn them to make money, right? I mean, if it yeah. costs you a hundred thousand dollars to buy, you need to make a million dollars off it. Like you've got to go hard and fast and use it before it gets patched. Uh, so I mean, I think it makes sense that they like. I think you could make the economics of that work as an initial access broker more so than you would at another, you know, kind of parts of the of the crime scene. Uh, it's mm. also interesting they were using um, uh, like machine learning generated fake social media profiles and stuff, which I thought that's a nice touch. Nice Just touch. stealing somebody else's pictures, you know? Yeah, yeah. What were they doing? The the weird images as well? Like people's, you know, fake profile pics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like using the you know, GANs to generate, you know, uh, fake pictures of people to use in social media profiles. And stuff. Yeah, it's, it's just always nice. funny nice when, you, when you look at them, you know, and the person looks normal and there might be someone in the background who looks like they've, you know, melted or something. <laughs> you know, like it always... <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's always a bit... There's always something like a little bit... Yeah. They'll get better at it, obviously. They will. Um, but, uh, yeah. 
There's that. Uh, we've got a, another story, another Dan Gooden one. He's been busy over at ours uh, talking about how the TrickBot crew are building up a pretty decent uh, botnet of uh, home routers. But it's the use that makes this interesting, which is um, uh, they're using them for C2, right? Because that makes them a lot harder to block. So they're sort of building this big distributed uh, C2 network, essentially. I thought this was pretty novel, but then Catalan uh, Kimpanu told me, oh, well, you know, other botnet operators have done this in the past, but still noteworthy. Yes, yeah. I mean, I think it's, you know, it isn't a new trick, but this is kind of at a scale that's unusual for a regular... Yeah, it's not a new trick, but it's but building something that's going to work at, at TrickBot scale, that is kind of new, isn't it? Yes, yeah. And I think, you know, it's certainly useful. I think, you know, if the... In the spook world, obviously, they've been doing this kind of thing for a while. I mean, they call them, what, I mean, operational relay brokers, orbs, instead of, uh, you know, proxies or C2 nodes or whatever. But yeah, I mean, you know, bouncing off consumer routers in the right territory, you know, everyone does that, but... Yeah, it's just interesting seeing, I mean, A, they're using uh, Microtech devices, which have been such a whipping, you know, kind of easy kick, internet kick-me sign for, for a while lately. But yeah, doing it, you know, seeing a criminal crew doing it at hundreds of thousands of device scale. Yeah, how, that, do, you, how do you distribute which one gets which C2 and like all of that, right? And how do you not expose your lists? And like, there's a bit, there's a bit to yeah, think about here. Yeah, I mean, scaling is not straightforward. There's a bunch of thinking that you have to go to make that work and work well. Um, so, yeah, good good engineering stuff, but yeah, certainly uh, you know we've seen plenty of other people on you know with different kind of hats doing that, doing yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah, and of course there's that sandworm linked botnet. Uh, we got a we got a write up here from Joe Warminski over at CyberScoop uh, talking about how they're targeting yet another type of uh, you know SME gateway hardware or whatever. Is that about right? Yes, I think they're hitting Asus devices as well as the like WatchGuard stuff we talked about a couple of weeks back. But I mean, same sort of thing, building up a large orb network to be able to go bounce stuff around. And if they're worried about, you know, internet access in Russia becoming more complicated, it makes sense to go build up, you know, kind of the scale of your access infrastructure uh, yeah. while you still can. Yeah, and uh, just make life a little bit tough. You know, you've built your amazing uh, uh, platform that you can use to uh, action all of that wonderful, expensive threat intelligence that you're buying. And uh, yeah, someone's going to exfil all your shit uh, to a home router based in <laughs> Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, uh, I'm just putting this one in uh, to, as one to keep an eye on because it's not really picking up that much attention, but I feel like it could over the next week, which is uh, someone uh, managed to bust into HubSpot and target something like 30 HubSpot portals. Now, HubSpot is a CRM uh, that is extremely popular, right? Because there's a free tier. A lot of people use it. Uh, it looks like in this case, the the attacker was after, uh, you know, that they, they, they were going after exchanges and like cryptocurrency people and whatever. But HubSpot gets a lot of access to people's G Suite and whatever. So, you know, they're saying fewer than 30 HubSpot portals were affected, but let's just have a look at the headlines over the next week. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think this was also interesting because it was a, um, an employee account getting compromised. So kind of, you know, reminiscent of what Lapsus has been up to as well, mm. like going after support engineers or people with access and then hoovering data out to then enable further attacks. And the sorts of customer information in HubSpot, you know, seems like a natural fit for then we would go use this to target phishing against people because we've got like more information about their relationship we can use that to build you know build trust for our fishes and so on so i get it does seem like a great place to do recon um so yeah we may see some follow-up stories 
And finally, Adam, we're going to end with a uh, with a Krebs on security piece here. Looking at the curious case of Alexei Burkov. Now, this is the guy that we, we've spoken so much about this guy. He was arrested in Israel and eventually extradited to the US and there was all this intrigue. Uh, and then he was mysteriously released and deported uh, very, very quickly when he was only a short way into his sentence. And we're wondering, was this because of some deal with Russia? Was this because of some embarrassing clerical error? Like, did they release him from prison because of the COVID-19 crisis and then, you know, didn't realise he was kind of an important prisoner or like, (laughs) we don't know what's happened. But uh, it looks like some Republican lawmakers in uh, the United States are starting to ask some questions about this. So we might actually get some answers soon, which would be, I can't wait. That'd be great. Yeah, this would certainly be interesting to understand what happened. And uh, Brian Krebs' comment section is filled with speculation and and wonderful ideas. Um, So we don't really have any great information there. Um, Brian did point out uh, that there were some sealed like sealed pleadings added to his court records uh, I kind of around the time he got released. Uh, so I don't know how long they stay sealed for or whatever's going on. But yeah, I'm, I am curious also. And uh, perhaps we will find out one day. Global conspiracy or clerical mm-hmm. error? We shall find out <laughs> <laughs> one day. All right, Adam Boileau, thank you so much for joining us this week, my friend. It's always a pleasure to chat to you and we'll do it all again next week. We certainly will. I'll talk to you then, Pat. That was Adam Boileau there with the check of the week's security news. Uh, I just want to preview uh, a podcast I'm going to push out tomorrow. I am publishing an absolutely kick-ass soapbox episode with the Airlock Digital team. Uh, It's a really great overview on allow listing, not just their stuff. uh, It's about what you can do with Microsoft tools versus more specialist stuff, what you can achieve at different levels of maturity and so on and so on. It's a really great interview. Uh, It's very entertaining too, and I really do hope you will check it out. So that one should be up tomorrow, assuming that I can get it finished in time. Uh, But now it is time for this week's sponsor interview with Paul Lanzi. Paul is a co-founder of Remediant and uh, they make a PAM solution that's really quite different because it's, you know, it's easy to deploy. It's actually quite usable. You can drop it in, in, you know, in a day if you do it right. And I'll uh, link through to a product demo I I recorded with Paul uh, in this week's show notes. uh, So you can actually have a look at it. That one came up great too. So we got a bunch of good feedback on it. So yes, do go have a look at that product demo and see how Remediance PAM solution actually works. Uh, Yeah, just-in-time access that isn't insane, which is uh, kind of rare, (laughs) sadly, depressingly. Anyway, Paul is not here to talk about product. He's here to talk about cyber insurance. It is a topic that has come up a lot for us lately on the show. Ransomware has borderline sunk the current cyber insurance model as payments ballooned and uh, payouts made a lot of insurers adjust premiums to the moon and slap all sorts of silly carve-outs onto their policies. But all is not lost, Paul says. This blow-up means the smart operators are moving into the space. The ones you don't want there are getting flushed, basically. So the smart ones remain and there's some new entrants as well. And, uh, you know, these are insurers who will actually have real conversations with their policyholders on what they're doing to mitigate risks. Here's Paul Lanzi. Yeah, so I had a great chat with uh, Anthony D'Agostino, who is a cybersecurity insurance veteran, actually now has created his own cybersecurity insurance startup called Converge. Actually, really interesting stuff happening over there. But he's been tracking this for a long time, and we've actually seen it ourselves. So Remedian's own cybersecurity cyber insurance security premium has gone up 200% over the last several years. And so we are not immune from this effect that's affecting the entire industry. Yeah, right. Okay. So this is, I, I think we can safely say this is a thing. 
this is absolutely a thing. And when we talk to our customers, they're having the same sort of problems, right? Their cybersecurity insurance providers are either dropping their policies or massively increasing the premiums or uh, the other really scary thing that's happening now is shrinking the set of things that they'll actually end up covering. So uh, that's some advice around that as well. Yeah, I mean, I get uh, little birdies popping into sliding into my DMs and telling me about some of the conversations they have with these insurers. I think one of them told me recently, and I haven't verified this, but they'll like do dollar for dollar matching on ransomware payments, but they're not going to cover the whole thing anymore, which, um, you know, I think that's uh, probably the right approach, to be honest. You know, otherwise, hey, when you're spending someone else's money, Right. You just pay all the monies, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, I mean, there's definitely some moral quandaries hidden in all of this, uh, but there's some opportunities as well. Yeah. Okay. So how flexible are the insurers when it comes to, you know, providing more favorable coverage terms if you're actually doing a decent job on security? Because I'd imagine that's one of the things you want to talk about today. Yeah. More than you might think. More than you might think. So we all get these cybersecurity insurance uh, questionnaires and they have very binary questions like do you have edr yes or no <laughs> do you have privilege access yes or no and sometimes it's difficult to answer yes to those questions if there's portions of your enterprise or portions of your organization that don't have that specific tool set installed um, and so you end up answering no and then your insurance goes up by 200 percent um, it turns out that there is a human being that reads those questionnaires and you can actually negotiate with and so that's one of the things that often surprises companies is these, the question is not meant to be a be all end all. It's meant to be the beginning of a conversation, but often it isn't. So um, based on conversations that you've heard, you know, happening between, uh, heard of happening between, uh, you know, uh, cyber insurers and end users, you know, what are the sort of things that they're, that can save you on your premiums and get you more favorable terms? Yeah. Well, it turns out there's only about eight things that cybersecurity insurance providers really care about that they actually use in assessing this. And they tend to show up on these questionnaires that we all fill out. Well, it turns out that two of those actually have to do with identity. One of them, no surprise, multi-factor authentication, right? Do you do multi-factor authentication? And hopefully the answer to that question is absolutely yes across the entire enterprise. Um, but the other one that comes up on that was privileged access, which is a much more nuanced uh, question for them to be asking. Yeah, I mean, because we've always kind of said in the past that the primary driver for privileged access management is compliance, right? I feel like, you know, just with the insurance market kind of waking up, a lot of these things that have been traditionally seen as compliance measures are going to be seen as like premium discounting measures, right? Like it's just another lever, another driver. Is Yeah, I, I would agree with you as long as they actually do something to improve security. Um, there are plenty of compliance plays out there that do absolutely nothing to improve security. And in fact, some cases actually degrade security. But but um, But who's to say that these insurance companies won't make the same mistakes as regulatory agencies, right? I, yeah, I guess, well, but they've got they've got skin in the game. <laughs> yeah, they have some serious money. Like there's actual money on the line here. The other thing is, that I think that there's some signs that insurance companies are getting better, right? Like there's some there's some signs that they're they're waking up, they're understanding uh, that they can actually have uh, some some force, a market force of their own in improving the security of their customers, right? Their their premium payers. I mean, I think I've seen signs of life in that previously like i had the i did an interview with the CISO. i think it was one of the major insurers I, I i i interviewed him as part of a panel for proof points uh like online virtual event uh and i think i can't remember if it was during the session or afterwards but they were talking about like working with some of their customers to you know improve their security get them a better deal on their insurance so i think at the mega enterprise level this has been something that's going that's been happening for a while but i guess what you're saying is you're starting to see evidence that it's trickling down into you know just general enterprise policies 
Yeah, it's trickling down in two different ways. So one, I think cyber, the really big cybersecurity insurance providers for a long time have offered tools, right? Some sort of cybersecurity tools to their customers at either free or a discounted rate. Um, I'm starting to see that happen more and more at the medium and small business levels. And I actually think that's a really promising sign that if you don't have a you know tool X or whatever, you can ask your cybersecurity insurance provider for a discount on one. And then they'll actually end up giving you also a premium discount uh, uh, under insurance if you end up adopting that tool. So that's one way I think that they're showing up a bit differently. I think the other way that they're showing up a bit differently is that they're actually open to understanding what your cybersecurity stack actually looks like. They're not just looking at the questionnaire results, but they actually want to have a dialogue. They want to hear terms from you like zero trust. They want to hear terms from you like uh, privilege access or multi-cloud adoption, other things that can help to mitigate your company's cybersecurity risk uh, that they will then reflect in a premium discount. Now, that was actually going to be my next question because, you know, you you were sort of implying earlier that this was no longer about a checkbox answer. Yes, you know, and, and of course, we're going to stick with the PAM example because that's the space you operate in. But, you know, it's no longer a checkbox that says, yeah, I have PAM. Uh, right, like that could be anything from a password vault to stuff that you do. Like it could, it could be kind of anything, and it could be useful, or it could be, as you pointed out earlier, actually doing more harm than good. So, how then does a cyber insurer have the, or an insurance company have the expertise to determine if a control is appropriate in context, if it's been rolled out correctly? Like it, it, it feels like it would be difficult for an insurer to get the get a handle on just how successful one of its customers has been in, in implementing a control? Yeah, well, there's two things there. One is you might want to use that as a market selection force. So if you're if the cybersecurity insurance provider that you're going to today isn't able to comprehend what it is you're doing to improve your company's cybersecurity uh, situation, then you may want to choose a different cybersecurity insurance provider who can ultimately get you a better discount on your premium if they can understand the steps you've already taken. Um, I think the second thing is actually there's more cybersecurity uh, expertise running around inside these cybersecurity insurance providers than we probably give them credit for. Mm. So in the conversations I've had with some of these folks, especially the ones that are doing the tool selection for the tools that they're going to offer to their customers for free or for, at a discount, um, these are some pretty clued in people. I mean, because they've been having to write the checks for the ransomware over several years, they they felt the pain, right? <laughs> they feel a different pain than we do as practitioners or as uh, cybersecurity uh, insiders, but they're, they're definitely feeling a pain. And so they've been heavily incentivized to upskill their own internal cybersecurity insurance, sorry, cybersecurity knowledge to, to better comprehend what's, what's going on in the world. So this is really interesting because essentially what you're outlining is a bit of a transition to what the, you know, the, the cyber insurance market should have looked like from the get-go. I mean, I know you're a regular listener of the podcast, right? Uh, and you would have heard over the years, Adam Boileau, you know, my, my, my co-host, the co-host of this program in the early days was like, oh, you know, the insurers are going to do so much good stuff here. They're going to, you know, introduce all these incentives. And it didn't happen. Like it no. just didn't happen. And then it looked like the whole model was kind of broken. So, I mean, on the pessimist side, you could say, well, this is just, you know, cyber insurance is just going to go away. But I guess you've, you're taking a more optimistic view, which is that there are some smarter people emerging now who are kind of doing it right. Yeah, well, the market forces have, have pushed them in that direction for sure. You know, you stop, uh, you write a couple of those multi-million dollar checks and all of a sudden it makes sense to, to understand your customers. But, but, but hang on, hang on. You're talking about the market force, right? And the easy thing to do if you're an insurance company and you're getting rinsed on this stuff is to just up the premiums until no one buys the policies and exit that business. But you say that's not what's happening. 
that's not what's happening. And, and, and part of it is because the reinsurance providers are behind the scenes influencing the market dynamics of the insurers themselves. So I don't pretend to be a, an insurance uh, industry expert, but there are a lot of forces at play uh, that are that are very relevant to understand uh, that are very complicated. And the interplay between the reinsurance providers, the insurance providers, and the premium payers is, is quite complicated. Oh, look, I'd recommend anyone who doesn't know a lot about insurance and the history of insurance and the degree to which it underpins basically everything that happens in the world. Um, you know, if you know someone in that industry, have that conversation because it is it is extraordinary, isn't it? Like how big it is and how complicated it is and how, you know, you can't you can't sail a ship without it, right? Are you saying that there's a man behind the curtain and the man is insurance? Is that what you're saying, Pat? <laughs> Not quite that, but I think it's just one of those things that people don't quite, you know, they don't quite pay enough thought to it. You know, they don't give it enough attention because it is just, you know, and, and, and again, when I say the, the historical side of insurance as well, in enabling things like international trade through shipping, like insurance is such a big part of that. Yeah, yeah. Lloyd's of London is an internationally has been internationally known for for uh, literally for centuries for a good yeah. reason, right? I think one of the things that the cybersecurity insurance providers have really woken up to is the ability to quantify risk better, right? So quantifying risk is at the end of the day that's what an insurance provider does. And if you're talking about the risk of an individual human, say, dying of a disease, they have literally hundreds of years of data that they can look and look at actuarial tables, et cetera, to determine, all right, what's the risk of Paul Lanzi having a fatal heart attack in the next 10 years? Um, they can, my insurance provider can probably guess at what that factor is much better than my doctor can. But with, when it comes to cybersecurity insurance, that's been very difficult. We don't have hundreds of years of data. We don't even have decades of data. And the, the data that we do gather every year shifts because of the, mark, the, the situation changes so drastically for cyber uh, cybersecurity insurance providers. Now, I think what they are looking at, though, is how can we quantify the risk of an individual organization? And when I mentioned that there's sort of two identity-related things that are in this list of roughly eight things that they actually care about, um, the two things are MFA and how much privilege access exists in the organization. And like you said, they may have deployed some sort of privilege access tool. It could be some homegrown solution. It could be a password vault. It could be something like what Remediant does. But being able to quantify what is the uh, the risk around the privilege access in that organization and show data, yes, I've been able to reduce it by 90% over the last year or so, will have a, a definitive impact on the cybersecurity insurance premium that that provider charges to their customer. I mean, on first at first blush, it sounds ridiculous, right, that you could come up with these um these sort of metrics that might help you adjust a policy. And, you know, we're not even going to talk about the whole difficulty involved of, of trying to insure against a, a you know, human guided adversary or, or attacker or whatever. But like, just thinking off the top of my head, you know, some sort of something like a proportion of, you know, local admin per local admin account per desktop count in any organization yeah. is actually going to give you a fairly decent measure, isn't it, in, in, in some respects? Absolutely. And that measure is often very terrible. So yeah. as we talked about on the show before, you know, when we look at our, uh, when we deploy in proof of concept mode and we do the scan and figure out who has privilege access, where and answer exactly the question you just asked, the average number we find is 480 accounts. <laughs> like that is bananas. Yeah. It is bananas for 480 accounts to have persistent 24 by seven privilege access on the average workstation, you know, virtual machine, desktop, whatever. Uh, that is crazy, but is exactly what we find. And so, yeah, that that's a great quantification of the risk in that organization. Now, another thing that you you mentioned to me earlier that uh, that I before we started recording that I found 
that I found interesting is you said that the the large insurers now, when they have to cut big checks, they're actually doing a bit of a sort of post-incident investigation to see what went wrong to try to build up their their internal knowledge. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is a bit of fight that challenge they have around not having actual actuarial data around cyber insurance is that the approach they're taking instead is a little bit like the NTSB where they bring in experts, uh, either their internal or external experts, to look at the root causes. What were the proximate causes, the root causes, et cetera, so that they can better inform the coverage requirements they have for their other customers. And that's sort of how they uh, arri ar arrived at these roughly eight things that they care about was by doing these sort of NTSB-ish uh, investigations into into big checks that they've had to write in the past. I mean, obviously, as a journalist in this space for twenty years, I've spent my fair amount of time picking over the corpses of you know various <laughs> various breaches, and it's it's usually pretty clear how someone got into trouble, isn't it? You know, like it, it doesn't require necessarily a detailed forensic analysis. You can you can look at something and kind of know what's what uh, pretty yeah. quick. Yeah. Yeah, I think it certainly it's not as complicated as say airplane crash investigation, uh, but I mm. think the fact cyber insurance companies are even trying to do this, I think what can help inform smarter decisions in the future, both on the customer side and on the insurer side. Now, just before we go, you mentioned two of the eight things, MFA, privileged access management. What are the other six? Just real quick, and then we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, for sure. So the other six that were on the list I got were uh, network segmentation and data encryption, which makes sense, uh, employee training and having an incident response plan, which sense that's a weird I mean, that's weird they're weird to lump together but anyway i'll allow it yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was a little strange to put those ones together uh offline backups was one uh, endpoint detection and response uh patch and end of life management and the last one was attack surface testing yeah paul lanzi thank you very much for coming on to the show to share your perspectives on uh, you know, cyber insurance and how it might be getting there, right? Because this is the, this this was a feel good interview that I wasn't quite expecting. Uh, it's been a pleasure to chat to you, my friend, and I'll look forward to doing it again soon. Wonderful as always. Thanks, Pat. That was another fabulous sponsor interview with Paul Lanzi of Remediant there. Paul is a great friend of the show. The risky business parties we had in Vegas were actually his idea. So uh, big thanks to Paul and uh, big thanks to Remediant for being a long-term sponsor of this show. And yeah, do go check out the video product demo I did with them that I have linked through to in this week's show notes. But that is it for this week's podcast. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow, hopefully, uh, with a soapbox edition of the show. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening. Thank you.